I think there's this untapped market that we can really kind of dig into, especially when we start incorporating the cleaning side of things with, with the restoration. You know, we could be doing some things on the cleaning side of things that are preventing the, the, the mold issues and the allergy issues down the road. Um, and when we really start to uncover the actual business model of this, uh, you have the, the, the nice cash flow coming in from the carpet cleaning side of things um, as you're ramping up the, the restoration side of the business too, like, which is, is definitely new to the industry. I don't know anybody else that's really doing it this, this way. Um, and I think there's a, a lot of merit to it and, and a lot of good reasons for it. Welcome to the Franchise Founders Podcast. We are on a mission to help aspiring entrepreneurs just like you take action through franchise ownership. Allowing you to obtain more financial freedom, time with family, and ultimately a business that can run on its own without you. Welcome to another episode of the Franchise Founders Podcast, your weekly, sometimes bi-weekly franchise podcast on all things related to owning your own franchise business, running your own franchise company, and everything in between. I checked and I think we've used the word franchise on this podcast over a couple thousand times. Uh, our goal is to say the word franchise a million times at one point. Um, wanted to invite or wanted to um, thank our special guest who's joining me today in the studio uh, live from uh, Wisconsin, Chief Operating Officer and Co-Founder Zach Nolte of Franchise Playbook and uh, COO and Co-Founder of Voda Cleaning and Restoration, uh, a brand by Franchise Playbook. And really excited to get into this episode. We talk about all things related to building and scaling a franchisor, what really a franchisor should be thinking about for their franchisees to support them at the highest level. And we get into all kinds of business lessons that Zach and I have learned through the years and through some scraped knees and uh, bloody noses. So without further ado, want to introduce Zach. Hey, Zach, how are you? Hey, thanks for uh, having me on the podcast. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me, me as well. Um, it's exciting because this is not our first time doing a podcast. We actually did an episode a while back when you were at Kitchen Solvers. Yeah, that was uh, before we knew that any of this was actually going to kind of unravel itself. But uh, yeah, it was back in what, late uh, late August, early September? It was, wow, yeah, it was late August, like a month before our, our conversations about playbooks. So that's kind of an interesting, yeah, interesting timing. Yeah, it's kind of funny how uh, things kind of unravel themselves a little bit and through conversations uh, where we all end up very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. Well, for the listeners that don't know, so so Zach's the, the COO of Franchise Playbook. And I've, I, if you know, I'm CEO of our, our company, Franchise Playbook. And Zach and I partnered up uh, literally in September or late September after attending a conference in our space called Springboards, a franchise conference for franchise professionals. We had known each other for years um, and always had good dialogue, but we were in different um, industries or different, um, you know, different different verticals. And so we started having conversations and partnered up right after that. So that podcast that we had done, if you listen to it, I'll put it into the, the notes and a link, um, was about a month prior to ending up deciding to work together. 
Yeah. I think our, our relationship up to that point was you were trying to sell kitchen stallers leads and I would just keep avoiding uh, having that conversation with you. So you're constantly chasing at that point. <laughs> but I think actually where our, our relationship really started was at the, the unconference back in, uh, I think, 2020, right before uh, COVID. I think, yeah. Well, if you remember, we sat in a room at, watching a panel and we were sitting next to each other. And I think I remember us both basically saying like, man, like that's what, that's what we'd like to build one day, you know, respectively with our own type of business. The speakers yeah. that were speaking were, were very, um, very, got us very excited about a future endeavor. So it's kind of funny how it all comes mm-hmm. together. Yeah, I agree. Let's get start. I mean, to start, Zach, I mean, just can you give our listeners like the, you know, synopsis of how you got to where you are today in your career and in franchising? Yeah, for sure. Uh, what well, I started back in um, 2000, probably 13 and 2013, uh, I was currently working at a, a manufacturing company. Um, and that's kind of where my, my, my dad was in manufacturing, everybody I knew that was, and they were running operations. Um, and I really knew that I loved like managing people uh, and, and getting in front of people and motivating them and, and, and trying to see what how, how the best way to kind of like pull information and get, get things from from the general uh, general worker, and so that always was like a passion of mine. Um, but then when I got into to the manufacturing world, I was doing I was in the inventory, finished goods, uh, learned a lot about lean manufacturing, how to run things like super efficiently. Um, but it, like it was just like the, the inventory side of things and cycle counts, and um, it just was not for me. Uh, so at that point, I started uh, looking for other jobs. And the general manager of kitchen solvers at the time, who I knew through um, uh, some small town neighborhood types of, uh, of relationships, uh, he reached out to me and he's like, "Hey, come come take a look at uh, at kitchen solvers." And I'm, I'm like, I don't know nothing about cabinetry. I know nothing about franchising. Um, he's like, no, don't worry about it. You'll, you'll do fine. And so uh, I ended up kind of jumping into the company uh, and in 2014. Um, and at that point, the general manager, he, his name was uh, Jerry Henley. Uh, he showed me everything about cabinetry that I needed to know. Um, and it also started teaching me franchising. And, and from the my very core values of, 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 of that first kind of year and a half, it was how do I best support franchisees to make sure they know they get exactly what they uh, wanted to coming into it. And then also how, how do we scale those businesses to make them uh, profitable for that end goal. Um, and so very early on, those, those kind of core values were kind of instilled into who I wanted to be uh, within franchising. And, um, and then shortly after that, uh, about a year and a half later, the general manager had left, uh, which left me in a kind of an awkward position as kind of like the second man on the totem pole. And uh, at the time, I wasn't ready to take on the, the president role. And so we, I started kind of interviewing for my own boss, <laughs> which was an interesting uh, endeavor. But um, hired a hired a president. Uh, he was there for about a year. Uh, and after he left, uh, through the um, kind of the push from the franchisees, they all said, hey, why don't you step up and why don't you take the and so at that point, I felt a lot more ready to, to be the president of Kitchen Solvers um, and had a lot of cool things in, in, in the works uh, with another company as well that we, we started out while I was with Kitchen Solvers. Um, and then the, the rest is kind of history. We, we kind of were a, a re-emerging brand as a 40-year-old brand uh, that needed some new life and some, some new energy uh, brought to it. And so um, myself and the team that we uh, kind of brought in at that time... Uh, 
kind of brought that back to life. And uh, Kitchen Solvers, which I'm, I'm very proud of, is is, is definitely uh, thriving and they're can continue to grow. That's excellent. So background in, in lean manufacturing, I know you have a certificate, you're Six Sigma, right? Sort of? Certified. I, I was going through the, the the process of that. I never actually got certified in it, but um, I spent a lot of time in the continuous improvement. Um, went through all the classes and all that type of stuff. I just don't have the certifications. Do you think that that back? Well, close enough. <laughs> close um, enough. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know that's like anything, right? Like uh, when I was finishing my, you know, my CFE, it was like, you know, all right, at this point, I I, I got it, right? Or you can you can teach the classes at this point. Yeah, yeah, but it's like you know sometimes that doesn't matter. But what, do you think that my question was more around? Do you think that that early career in that manufacturing space and understanding you know supply chain and understanding that overall operational side translated into your uh, ability to succeed as a franchisor? Like, or do you think it was not really relatable? Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And, and so right uh, when I was still in college, uh, I worked for this manufacturing company. It's called uh, Matthews Inc. Uh, they're one of the world's largest uh, bow manufacturers, so archery products. And um, they're very, very into uh, just efficiency, lean manufacturing, Six Sigma. And so I actually, my I interned as a continuous improvement intern. And what that position and then my following position there when I got hired full-time out of college I was I, I learned like everything from raw materials inventory to how then how do those raw materials go into production and it's watching those raw materials then turn into finished products and and watching that entire process and understanding how the buyers work to get the raw materials how the end person is then selling that uh, the, the finished product to the consumer that well-rounded kind of view of all the different positions and how each of those positions tie into the get uh, into each other and that the the one little tiny mistake that is made early on in the process and the ripple effect that that has throughout the entire uh manufacturing process like you fully kind of start appreciating start appreciating that entire process um but it also allowed me to kind of start thinking about like when it relates to franchising you know when we from the moment that we create the FDD, what is that ripple effect that is going to then kind of happen to the franchisees and how do the franchisees become successful? And then what is that relationship like with the franchisor? And so being able to kind of like foresee like all those different possibilities uh, definitely played into kind of my early on career. And I've been able to use those same, same, uh, same thought processes every, ever since. Mm, that makes, that makes sense. You're understanding how one effect will move toward another and, and down the, the supply chain, down to the franchisee, how they're going to take that and, and make a decision. So you get into kitchen solvers and you start off really on the ground level. And then what you're saying is through somewhat of like franchisee, you were nominated to be president, like a franchisee desire for you to step up into that role at that time. Yeah, it, it would what it really comes down to is like the, the, the relationship with the franchise or the franchisees really comes down to trust. Um, I, I spent so much time with our franchisees understanding how the business runs. Um, and then also understanding the, the cabinet world. So I could speak the same lingo as some of these guys that have been in the business for 20 or 30 years. Mm. And so, I, I mean, I got beat up. I, I really did. I got beat up by the franchisees and, and really trying to understand, you know, what they want and how do I then, uh, 
come into this business with zero experience and how do I make myself kind of like this expert level uh, experience. And so it took, took some time and it took a lot of humbling experience uh, experiences to really kind of start understanding that. I could probably draw it back to about five franchises that really held me accountable for not only just the cab industry, but also as, as a franchisor. And so through those experiences, it, it really kind of kind of started shaping uh, kind of what my core values are at a, at a franchisor level, um, mm-hmm. but also uh, having that 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 kind of um, I guess the the cheerleading behind you from the franchisees to kind of step into that new role as a president. Uh, definitely, f- I felt very supported, um, and that they all had my backs and kind of allowing me to kind of mess up a little bit, test out some new ideas. And then as long as they knew that there was going to be strategic growth uh, after that, they were, they were all 100% on board with it. Mm. Now, there were areas that you came in as president and you you really transformed. And I don't know how much you, you, know, you want to yeah. get into the details, but I know around, you know, business performance review type metrics and AUV metrics and um, yeah. like my first question is when you, when you got into that president role, how did you first identify what challenges were there and needed to be solved? And then how did you prioritize them? Like, what was that process like? Did- yeah, it's, it, it, I'll, I'll get into there too, but the, the main core one was that, and the huge shout out to this, uh, this, uh, this vendor partner uh, in franchise business review, FBR. Uh, we, we, we Kitchen Stars was doing FBR about a year before I got into it. And the the scores at that time were 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 bad. I mean, they were they were not great. Um, and it it had to do with some of the ownership changes that were happening, happening um, new new people kind of coming into the business, kind of the changing of the 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 culture and the guard, uh, taking the model from like kind of a a single owner operator model uh, where one person was coming in and doing everything from installation to sales to marketing, and then changing that model into something that they could kind of grow and scale uh, from a bigger business side of things. And um, it, it, it was it was taking a, a look at the scores to realize that there's a massive issue with kind of the culture that was happening within Kitchen Solvers. And that was the first thing that we had to really kind of identify and, and start changing kind of the way that, that we approached how we interacted with our franchises. And so we started off, I, th- I can't remember exactly, but it was like the score was probably in the upper 50s in the benchmark for FBR at that point, just the bare bones benchmark was like a 72. And so through those years of kind of taking that feedback from the franchises um, and then communicating back on what the changes are, because that was a huge part Mm -hmm. of of it was this lack of communication. We were able to then take that score of like the upper 50s into like a 62, 67. And then finally, uh, I think the, the year that I became president, we jumped from like a 67 up to like a 75 or 70. Uh, and then when I left, uh, we, we were scoring in the, the uh, lower, lower to mid 80s uh, by the time we left. And so understanding that uh, and being able to listen to the feedback from the franchise that when, what they were giving, making changes and at our yearly conferences and at our yearly events that we had with them, we said, here's where we scored the lowest and here's what we're going to do to change it. Uh, we had strategically put in that that uh, FBR survey kind of in like the August September mark, and so when we were able to then get the feedback, and then we had three months to kind of vet out how we were going to change our model, how we we're going to enhance our score, listen to the feed uh, the feedback from the franchises, and then at our next conference, which was usually in January February, 
we were then able to say, here are the results. Here, here are the things that we're going to do differently. What are your thoughts? And then be able to get the direct mm-hmm. feedback from the franchisees. So you're able to utilize the information in the FBR database, data, like the way yeah. they answered the questions. That's what gave you the areas that needed improvement. And I'm sure you were able to then prioritize which ones needed to be addressed first. And then you would additionally go and speak with franchisees and get their feedback and essentially buy-in before going forward and then solving those problems. You would, you would, you would get their feedback on your, your, your path to how you were going to solve those problems. Exactly. Yeah. And the feedback piece of it too is like, you know, there's a lot of people that are like, well, why don't you just talk to your franchises more? It's like you, you can, but they're not always going to tell you exactly what they feel until they get like an anonymous survey that takes them 15 minutes to kind of complete. And it gets into questions that they may not have really thought to bring up to you. And so like, are you happy with your financial performance? Well, not really, but is that something that you can fix? Like I'll put in a survey and there's definitely something with that we can do to fix those things. Um, and so let's, let's, let's really dig deep into those. And so it, the FBR survey was like one port, one small portion of the giant feedback loop that we were getting from the franchises. But it, it was definitely the most important because you, you got data. Like it was, there was like something tangible there to hold on to. Uh, and you were able to see the, the results across all your franchise that took the survey. Right. So now at this time, as you're improving and you're running kitchen solvers as president, you also start another kitchen uh, uh, franchise or in the kitchen space. Um, well, one, how did you have the time to like, how did you, I was like, how did you build that? <laughs> yeah, it was uh, like, we had tried for probably, I was, I'd say like two years um, to push this product line and what was called storage solutions underneath the kitchen solvers model. Uh, and it was basically the, kind of the the selling of additional storage products, kind of the upsell types of, of uh, products into the kitchen. Um, and like a lot of people, some people did really well with it, uh, but it was to really kind of push that mark, um, I guess to its fullest extent, it had to be its own standalone product. The sales process was different. Uh, it's a little bit more higher pressure sales. Um, it, t- it took a lot more sales training to get into that, that type of product, higher, very high margins on it. Um, and it wasn't necessarily like an absolute need within the kitchen. It was something that like you yeah. wanted to have. Um, and so understanding that and also understanding like <clears throat> what Shelf Genie was doing, Shelf Genie was a, a massive, and they still, I still, I think I just saw them ranked in the top 20 or 25 in, in the uh, top franchises. Great, great company. Um, but there was no one in that that space to kind of compete. So with it being kind of a, a smaller market um, and then also knowing that a lot of consumers loved dealing with this type of product, uh, we we decided to branch it off into a complete, completely separate franchisor. Um, so really just started everything from scratch. Uh, we took a lot of the core processes of, of kitchen solvers and meant to implement them into KitchenWise was the name of the company. And, um, and so I got to go through that whole... You know, just starting a company, uh, kind of building out the the formation of it, uh, going through a complete new rebranding project. I worked with an awesome guy uh, down in Vegas that uh, he he helped this whole vision come to life. And it, I have a huge respect for that type of creative. Uh, so it was fun to kind of go through. Um, but then building out the, the pricing programs, the, the sales processes, um, and uh, really put, get, putting together a nice package for uh, future franchises. 
Um, and so like you alluded to, like kitchen solvers at the same time was taking off. Uh, and then I had kitchen wise. that was also, uh, we were running a remote office up in, uh, uh, Minneapolis. And that was where our, our kind of our first location was up there. So I had a general manager up there running, running that, that company. Um, and then we brought out a couple of franchises and it did, it, it did become almost too much work at some point. And so when I had the, the opportunity, uh, someone came up to me and was generally interested in it. Uh, the, the price was right. And, and we ended up selling the company about three years later. And uh, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's, it's definitely fun to have gone through that experience, but it's also like, there's a little part of me that's like, that, that's my baby still. <laughs> Yeah, and it continues to thrive and it continues to grow as does as does your previous company. But it, it's interesting because, you know, I was always impressed when we started talking about that was that you you saw that the priority had to go into kitchen solvers as it was taking that up uplift and that kitchen like you gave kitchen wise a home where it could thrive in a you know in a platform and, and when you exited that business. But it's interesting because like when you think back like both experiences as running a large franchisor in home services and then starting, like you said, through a branding agency and creating the pricing models, both experiences bring us to here, right? Where yeah, that's right. exactly what we do, right? Like it was, it was, it was all about with playbooks starting out, Hey, we're going to have to do the, the nitty gritty stuff. Nobody wants to do today, but we also going to be running a large company managing lots of people. And you've done both. You've been in both seats. Yeah, yeah. I, I get the question every so often. It's like, hey, do you regret selling it or 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 regret exiting from it? It's, there's nothing about it that, that I regret for sure. But what I really kind of allude my my late twenties and early thirties to was is that um, I wanted to gain as much experience as possible so that I can then share that experience with everybody else I'm working with. And so being able to go through that exit, I now had something to say and talk about to our franchisees and say. I've been through this. Like I, I know what the steps yeah. are in order to get my business sold. So when when a franchisee comes in for the first day of training and when we focus in on their financial break even, but we also ask the questions like, you know, what do you want to do with this in the next 10, 15 years? Are you are you building this up for your kids to take over? Or are you selling the company? And if you are selling the company, I now have that experience where I can share that with you and, and provide provide some guidance uh, through that. And I think even and now in, in our current uh, endeavor with playbook uh, in the those future franchises, I still have that experience to be able to kind of go through um, and, and really talk them through that entire process, which um, I think is invaluable, uh, especially this early on in my, in my career. Uh, yeah, I equate exiting a business as an entrepreneur to like, you know, getting your MBA or or it's like your notch. It's like your it's it's a, it's a notch on the belt that shows a true ability to build a company. Like you built something that was able to remove you fully. I mean, two times now, right? Kitchen Solvers, again, continues to thrive, right? Without, you know, you at the helm because you set up the systems properly, right? For the franchisees and, and for the, the company. Kitchen-wise, same thing. And I think it's it's also interesting because you had that experience of your baby going to someone else. And I think knowing how to knowing how to remove yourself from your business from an emotional place allows you to make such more better logical decisions, which now you have, you have that behind you as well. Same for me. It's like knowing that you can love your business and love the people, mm -hmm. uh, but being able to remove your emotions from it so that you can make decisions that are best for the company, not best for your ego. Yeah. And I, I would, I, I agree with that. I would change it just a little bit to say like, you, those are very emotional things that you can go through and there can be emotion tied to them, but you can't allow them to cloud your judgment. 
And so there's things that like leaving kitchen solvers is probably the hardest things that, that I've had to do in my career by far. Um, where I was left, I left, I left a team that I had built and that I highly respect and they're, they're very talented individuals. And I left the franchisee base that all trusted uh, who I was in the direction of the company and, and that I built really good relationships with as well. Um, but at the same time, like when, when there's opportunities to kind of, kind of take, uh, you have to weigh the pros and cons, <clears throat> remove the emotion from those decisions, and then, 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 then take steps forward into whatever that path looks like for you. Sure. Absolutely. If you're enjoying this episode, please click the subscribe button and make sure to connect with the Franchise Founders Podcast on LinkedIn. So let's, let's get into that. So, so we start, we start playbook, which was, you know, uh, September, right? So like late September, early, uh, you know, we start talking, having conversations, you know, painting the vision of what we wanted to do. Um, man, I remember, I remember being, I don't know what trip I was on, but I was traveling. I remember just constantly texting back and forth about just, if you think back, (laughs) not that long ago, what industry are we going to go into? Right. We yeah. were thinking about car detailing and roofing and siding and like that wasn't long ago. No, right. It feels like a long time ago, uh, but at the same time, like it, it was a very short time ago. Uh, yeah. And I think uh, once we kind of figured out that like, all right, there's something here. I think we were all through October, um, uh, end of October and then into, into, uh, November, we were definitely kind of going back and forth a ton on the industry that we wanted to go. And I think by, by mid-October, we were like identified, this is the industry we want to do and let's, let's rock and roll in it. So that was the, a lot of, a lot of texts back and forth. I remember my wife being like, who are you, who are you on the phone with? I'm like, Dan, it's always Dan. Same <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> here. I get those, you know, we, we have our late night, uh, now it's teams messages, but it, it, those yeah. messages fly throughout the, the week, the weekend, nighttime. <laughs> mm-hmm. You'll have to yep. meet uh, our our significant others. Will have to meet uh, soon enough. But <laughs> so, <laughs> so like it's interesting because like, and then we had Steve and our team. You know, doing lead generate. We were talking to businesses. We were we were on biz buy sell. We we looked at, I mean, dozens of industries and you know a lot of businesses. Um, what do you think for you, Zach? Like like no like, what really pulled the um the trigger for you or, you know, the, what really clicked about restoration and cleaning that made you feel so, so confident in that being our first industry and brand? Yeah. I think just from the the standpoint that it, I feel like it's a very large industry and I, I don't think the, the actual data that there is on the industry is, is even close to being accurate. I think it's probably almost double, if not triple the numbers that, that, that are reported. Uh, but also too that there's a, a way for us to incorporate a lot of technology into into the industry as well that I think uh, is coming down the pipeline. Um, so that and then also being recession resistant um, and pandemic resistant, there's always going to be a need for homes. The the average uh, life of the home is only going to get um, uh, bigger, and and it seems like there's a lot of the climate difference uh, differences in the last uh, couple of years here that are are opening up things. Uh, but also, I think there's another side of, of restoration where you can kind of get into like that healthy home living where people are really starting to pay attention more to that. Um, and so eliminating dust and mold and, and whatever else are causing allergens and health health sicknesses that you may not know are there. 
I think there's this untapped market that we can really kind of dig into, especially when we start incorporating the cleaning side of things with, with the restoration. You know, we could be doing some things on the cleaning side of things that are preventing the, the, the mold issues and the allergy issues down the road. Mm. Um, and when we really start to uncover the actual business model of this, uh, you have the, the, the nice cash flow coming in from the carpet cleaning side of things um, as you're ramping up the, the restoration side of the business too, like, which is, is definitely new to the industry. I don't know anybody else that's really doing it this, this way. Um, and I think there's a, a lot of merit to it and, and a lot of good reasons for it. And that, that has come through like a lot of the validation that we've gotten as we're vet, vetting this business uh, from people directly in the industry. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I'd love to offline learn about when you, I, I think you you perhaps said that the triple number after even more data, I know you've been digging into re- restoration with some tremendous restoration leaders that you're, they're tapped into now. But, you know, cause I heard the same thing. I, I was always gravitated, like uh, someone once told me, or actually it's something I read in a book called Enterprise Value, which talks about when you're looking at starting another a company, you know, I, my last company that I started, it wasn't about starting some company that could be massive and you can have an exit to PE. That wasn't the thought. It was about how can I make a living? Like, honestly, like how can I have my own business, control my own destiny, have my own, you know, freedom and build a business that, that pays enough to, to live. <laughs> and then as the business grew, the idea of, of building something much larger started to come in. Because I think if you're someone listening to this and you're potentially going to be an entrepreneur, you know, it doesn't start that way. It could start big, but you don't have to start with it. I want to have a massive empire and have 50 units of a brand. You could just start with how do I replace my income and have my own business and not have to answer to, you know, Bob, the boss I don't like. And then you can get confident by doing that. And then you go to the next milestone, right? So like for me, you know, the, the goal post has extant as, has moved a bit in the sense that now it's chasing legacy and building a company that affects a lot more people. I want to help thousands of people become business owners and succeed, but that wasn't the goal years ago was starting my previous company. Um, but in this one, when we looked at industries, I started reading Enterprise Value and they said, is the industry in or out of favor with institutional investors? Meaning, you know, are institutional investors like it or don't like it? And restoration was, it's it's a $210 billion industry. As, as Zach said, we think it may be, there's data that's saying that it's $300 billion based on the fact that people don't always report all the jobs and I'm sure you can get into that, but there's even a belief that, like you said, maybe is even more than that. But overall, the industry at 210 billion is massive. If you think about the pizza industry, it's a $50 billion industry and you see a pizza place at every single corner. That's a, you know, a quarter of the size. And we don't realize it's so big because unlike a fire truck that's screaming down the road at the ambulance, when there's a fire, you see that, you see pizza, you see, you know, these consumer gyms you don't see water restoration. You don't realize it's happening in your neighbor next door, right? Yet there's 14,000 water damage incidents a day. And so for me, like seeing the size of the industry, the year over year growth, I think is about 6%, which is massive on 210 billion or 300 billion, whatever. And then you looked at enterprise value talked about, you know, is that industry in or out of favor of institutional investors? We saw roll-ups happening all over the restoration space outside of franchising. And so like for me, I fell in love with this idea that the other brands, there's great, tremendous, large restoration companies in the space now, but they're, they're large, well-known established brands. And there was an opportunity to come in on the ground level. Um, and you know, like franchise playbook, our mission is to empower entrepreneurs to think bigger. 
And with our first brand in the Hold Co., we wanted a business that we could really provide business owners with an opportunity to have a scalable, I don't like the word semi-absentee, a scalable manage the manager kind of business. And so like, as we looked at restoration, it was pretty serendipitous that our founder that we, uh, of the brand that we acquired, like I remember going in there and this is not uh, a claim to what our franchisees could do. I just want to be clear, but our fa- the founder of the business has been doing this for 13 years. He joked around with me, he said, Dan, I come in here about seven. I have a team meeting at eight and by nine 30, I'm done with my work. And like, it's, it runs, it's, it's a very simple business model. If you think about it. Yeah. <clears throat> agree with everything you said too. And it, what, what allowed our founder to do that is that like, he does take that approach where he is people first. Like he's got, he's got an amazing culture that he's established. Um, that is, is definitely replicable, but you have to like really believe in your core values and you have to really instill those into the employees that you, that you uh, hire. And if you're able to do so, he's got like this amazing group of people that all learned the industry from him, got into the business and just slowly just kind of started building up the business to a point where he's able to uh, take a step back. Uh, and he doesn't have to, to be in the field. He doesn't have to learn the day-to-day, but um, he's looking at these amazing spreadsheets that he's put together to, to understand the business model on a very deep level and to really start fine-tuning it so that it can be more profitable yet. Um, it's definitely a testament to, to him as a manager. Oh, absolutely. And as, you know, as a visionary leader, I mean, you think so, so we're going like, in this saga or in this story. So we decided to build franchise playbook, an incubator of dynamic franchise brands where we own and operate these brands. Um, audacious goal, right? We set a goal of doing, having 10 brands by 2030, not tomorrow. I always clarify to people. Um, why did we do that? We decided that we knew we wanted to build a platform. And even if the next brand didn't come for five years, we made the decision together that it's better to tell a franchisee candidate, potential franchisee, look, this is the plan from day one. We're going to build Voda Cleaning and Restoration. We're going to make it tremendously successful. We're laser focused on that. We're building the systems up front so that we can be able to work on a next brand in the future. Here's why it will benefit you. Here's how and why we're doing it. Instead of three years from now coming out and saying, hey, by the way, we're starting another brand and sorry, too bad. You didn't sign in onto it. It doesn't matter. No, instead we're getting buy-in up front because it's funny. People joke around me. They're like, wow, you're, you're pretty confident to say 10 brands. Well, again, the goal is not 10 brands tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. The goal is to tell people our true vision so that we're uh, transparent. Um, you know, but like when we were looking at industries, then we had to go into the acquisition process, which <laughs> neither of us have done. Yeah, that was definitely a first uh, experience for me. And there's always, I think plenty of people had warned us, it always takes longer than you think. <laughs> and how many times we were like, all right, one more week, one more week, one more week. And uh, it's definitely like, again, this invaluable experience you go through that watching and negotiating with the, the founder and then bringing in attorneys and then they bring their attorney into it and like that whole game that happens there. Uh, it was an incredible experience for sure. And I learned probably more in that, uh, I don't know, probably 30 to 40 days of negotiating than I have uh, in, in probably five or six years of, of running a business. But it was, it was, it was, it was wild, but it was amazing. Uh, and we all, we all left, I think that, that agreement, like pretty happy with the way that things turned out. Yeah. I mean, if you, 
you remember like their initial conversation was, look, good, a good agreement. Uh, everyone's going to be a little unhappy, right? Everyone's going to get a little bit of something or not get something that they want. And that's a good deal. And you don't want to make a deal with someone that they're not happy. So I'm very happy uh, the relationship we've built with, with, our, with our founder. But l- let me ask a question. Do you think, had you not gone through the exit of your previous business, do you think you would have been able to facilitate this acquisition in the way that we did so smoothly? I, I, I feel like it was very smooth for, for two people that have never done that before and a founder that's never done that before. But do you think you'd been, been able to without having the previous experience of being on the other end? Uh, yeah, you definitely like learn, definitely learn a lot through those experiences. And I think, again, one of the biggest things that we always had to remind ourselves of, but also remind our founder of is to take that emotion out of agreements. Like we were having separate conversations about how we were going to move forward and, and how we we're going to build the business. But when it came to talking about the legal, all that relationship stuff had to be kind of set aside. And it's not, not us attacking you. It's just attacking the words that are on the on the, the the legal documents and trying to come up with a solution that is best for everybody. And so having done that already and like seeing the ups and downs of the, the emotional roller coaster it goes through, I don't know how many times I left the negotiation with with KitchenWise being like, it's not happening. There's no, there's no way. There's no way we're going to meet in the middle on this one. Um, and in the end of the day, it, it all works it works out. But if you sit there and you beat yourself up over, the, over all these little points, all things that all the scenarios that you don't think of that the lawyers bring to the table, uh, you can you can probably drive yourself pretty crazy. Um, but uh, I think the, the the main point of all of that is that we knew that we had a, 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 a end goal, and we also our founder had an end goal, and it was the same. So it's just like whatever path we got to, it was going to end up with us getting the deal done. And so we knew that was the path. And so it, it made a, I think it, we could have probably stretched it out for six months. Like it, it could have been a long, long process, but we, we were in, at a point where we wanted to make a deal. Um, and the founder also wanted to make a deal, which allowed us to, to get to things uh, a little quicker. So the long answer, I think that experience from an emotional standpoint, definitely, definitely helped out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say like for me, um, learning from my exit, like, there was things I could have done differently. And like, there were like understanding that nothing in a transaction, whether on the acquire or acquiree is personal, none of it, not one thing Mm -hmm. is personal. And you should of course approach everything with care and, and, and uh, be a gentleman about how you deal with things. Nothing in any interaction is personal. And so like for me, I know for me during the acquisition process, staying calm through the process. And really, I think what we also did Zach is we built a deep, really deep relationship with, with, with dragon, with the founder and his family and our families. And like, we really prioritized that, Hey, look, when the negotiating this agreement's happening, that's separate from when we're out to dinner and we're building our relationship. I also think what you said, which was, we kept our eye on the prize and we continue to build the, I mean, we built the business while we were negotiating anyway, which I think showed a level of commitment to them that we're not going anywhere. We intend to make a, a deal happen. Um, I know for the next time, and I, I also think, I don't know about you, but I, I think because we were willing to be flexible and listen with the intent of understanding their perspective, I almost think that we've made the deal that we can make again and again because we figured out what would, like I, I, I personally, mm-hmm. if I was, if I were, when we do this again with a, a business, I don't think there's a better deal you can get. Like we did it in such a way that's so aligned between the founder, the business and ourselves. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've joked a couple of different times that the, all the, the the legal fees that we put into this one, we can stretch those yeah. out across our next ten brands. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. we we uh, we can definitely uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's being able to to have that that agreement. We know how to structure these agreements now. We're able to kind of then bring those that structured agreement to kind of our first couple meetings with a new brand that we're looking at acquiring. We say this is how we're going to do things. And then we can kind of negotiate and fine tune on the small things. But then overall, like we, we already have the playbook created for how we're going to acquire businesses. And, and that playbook is not going to work for everybody else that might be trying to create what we're trying to create, but it's perfect for what we're trying to get. And that's, that's someone partnering with people that believe in the mission. They understand our goals and they also understand that their goals and we, we all uh, can, can come out uh, winning together. Yeah. Completely. So, all right, let's, let's jump into, well, one of the things you said that I definitely want to hit on is the technology component, but let's just, mm-hmm. this is a fun, like we've kind of gone through this, this journey, right? So, so we, we make the acquisition in February and the next project, well, I mean, of course it was done in tandem to the, the acquisition, but for all intents and purposes, anyone listening, we acquire the brand, we set out to to hit a rebrand because we wanted to create a nationally recognizable brand, something that would stick in the minds and hearts of our consumer, right? And our goal at Vota is to create a new level of clean. We wanted to go after the homes that were high-end and affluent. And so through this agency who works with like companies like Target, they were, we, they and I, and we were intentional with how do we create a brand in the restoration and in the cleaning space that would stand out in their mind and hearts of the consumer and and resonate with them that we were going to be able to not only be there in the time of an emergency like water damage issue, but also provide a new level of clean where the experience was so professional. Um, walk, walk, I mean, walk me through that, man, because like I remember the initial conversation around. I mean, every entrepreneur wants to wants to go through a branding project like that. I mean, we did it to the fullest, um, and you had done it with with Kitchen Wise. I had done it with Playbook. Um, you know, let, let's just talk through that that journey real quick. Yeah, to, g- given our, our short short period of time that we had to like rebrand, come up with a new new name for the company, and uh, and then do this in a short amount of time because we wanted to to, to start selling as as quickly as possible. Um, it, it, we almost put like a like a goal and a timeline that was impossible to hit, and so we had to take that in consideration when when vetting out. The branding company, and we we vetted probably ten or fifteen different companies. A lot of them great. A lot of them were awesome companies that we thought could provide us exactly what we what we needed. But there was always that element of time, like how quickly can we can we get all this done? And our, our CMO um, Christian Bencourt, like he he he's he's done this. He knows branding companies, and and uh, and one thing that uh, Dan that you and I have always talked about is that we now get the chance at this level to be able to build things the way that we've always wanted them to be built with, with, with no franchisees or no, um, uh, you know, no uh, board directors or anything like that is, that is, is trying to push us into a certain direction. Like we get to start at like ground zero and ground zero is like level a thousand. And, and for us, we were able to start and build those companies out right away. And so he, he had a couple in mind of, uh, of branding agencies that he wanted to work with and we were able to then depart with this. And so with his expertise on that side of things, um, we were able to set the expectations. And um, 
I always have like this like really cool like uh, I guess passion or or uh, just outlook on on the whole marketing and branding side of things because my brain does not work like that at all. But there are people out there that they can take your words of, of things that you're saying of what you want the brand to look like. They're able yeah. to spin it in a way that all of a sudden comes out in this like this perfect picture of what you thought in your head. And now you get to see a visual of what it is. And to be able to do that is just it's amazing to me. And so they were able to kind of take this uh this company, they heard from the founders, they heard from uh, the leadership team at Playbook, and we were able to then uh, come up with this amazing brand that definitely sticks out from the rest of the restoration brands, I think, uh, in a way that is that brings like a level of sophistication um, and a level of, uh, of cleanliness to, to the brand, um, to the point where I think people will, will see Voda and they, they just naturally kind of fall in love with the, the imaging that, that we create. Um, but the company did an, an amazing job hitting our timelines, hitting hitting these unrealistic goals. Uh, and I don't expect that to happen again, but uh, it's something that did happen and we we're very thankful for it. Yeah. Yeah. Everything, everything aligned. I know, I know we're coming up on time, but like what I'll, what I'll just say is like when it came to the brand, we wanted like, we, we have a brand. It's not, when I say nationally recognized, but of course it's not known across the nation yet. That's the plan that it will, but it's designed utilizing demographic and psychographic data that this brand would resonate really well when it came to restoring and it came to cleaning. And again, we know that you as much as I do that having the cleaning and the restoration together allows us to get into the home, build the trust, get other restoration work. It allows our franchisees to have cleaning business with very cash flow. Uh, you know, the cash flow quicker while they wait on the restoration work because anyone in restoration has to build relationships with property managers and plumbers and insurance and they have to wait for the job to pay them, right? When they get paid by insurance. And so we're solving that maybe potential cash flow issue by having the cleaning, which is very simple. And, and, and you know, honestly, I, I think it's a joyful business, right? You come in, you clean a carpet or floor. I mean, this company, we, we made the acquisition, especially because there was over a thousand five-star reviews. I remember one night being up till like four in the morning, just reading them every single <laughs> review and being like, this is, this is a, this is an unbelievable company. They've bottled the way of doing uh, the customer experience in a way that's so uncanny. I think just as we wrap up on time, like the things that I thought were really cool about us building this brand were one, as you mentioned, we've had this decision tree or, or way of making decisions of with Christian. Hey, Christian, You've been a CMO for a while. You've been a marketer for a long time. You haven't just thought about, you didn't just get a branding task and think about it for a week. He's been thinking about that for a really long time, years probably, right? So we were able to deploy the perfect branding agency after someone did years of research that are part of our intellectual, you know, and human capital in the firm. And then for you, Zach, like, I think the coolest thing we did here is said, hey, Everything that could be improved, we were able to do in our system from day one through building the proprietary technology stack that we've built to scoreboard with our data analytics, to the lead generation that we're doing, to the way we're finding trucks, right? I mean, to the way that we're helping. Obviously, we can't help in the sense of hire people, but the way that we've designed some outsourced partners to find employees. I mean, every question and potential issue that a franchisee can have, we've set those systems up. I mean, you joked around yesterday that we have more, in my opinion, we have more support than 90% of franchisors and we don't even have a franchisee yet. It's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> it's amazing. Now we just got to add fuel to the, you know, add the, uh, the people in. Yeah. Yes. Plug and play. Just got to add them to the system and uh, keep, keep supporting them the way that we know how to support franchises. And 
And uh, I think we're, we're building something very, very special from the support side of things. I agree. Well, thanks for joining the show. Obviously, we got a busy schedule. So appreciate you carving out an hour of your day to, to talk a little bit about our journey so far. Not a problem. Love doing it. Well, there you have it, everyone. Zach Nolte, COO and co-founder of Franchise Playbook and co-founder of Voda Cleaning and Restoration, COO of the company. We've recently launched, we're working with lots of franchise candidates um, to be franchisee number one. If you want to be part of that starting lineup of franchisees that are getting that VIP treatment, the white glove of us being involved from the start. Remember, we are not, we may be new to restoration, although our founder and executive team, some of them on the team are not. We are not new to franchising. We are a franchisor background. I joke that there's franchise systems with 50 or even 100 units that have less experience than we do between the team of people, right? And so you want to be in on the ground level with the franchise system and get tremendous support. We're here to, to chat. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Franchise Founders Podcast. If you want our help with anything from buying a franchise to franchising your business to anything in between, shoot us an email at franchisefounders at gmail.com. 